0: Without further ado, let's open up our Bibles uh, to the book of Joshua. That's what we've been in. We're halfway through. This is a series called "Stepping Into God's Promises," and that's what it's about. You know, through the vignette of Israel's story, starring Joshua and company, uh, they are on a mission to receive and to apprehend and to grab hold of all that God has been promising them for hundreds of years. This is God's people stepping into God's plan for their life, stepping in to his increasingly, incredibly great promises and all the obstacles along the way, including what we're about to see, a very sizable obstacle. Um, But we kind of, we opened with Joshua last week. Uh, You remember, if you were here, Alan spoke on one uh, part of that, the first paragraph, kind of looking at a vignette of what it looks like to... Uh, or excuse me, what it looks like when we, we do not seek the counsel of God uh, in our lives and the uh, the the pain and the circumstances and repercussions of that. Now we're just going to look at the the main point of the entire chapter. So it's kind of a long one. I'm just going to do what I've been doing for the past couple of weeks. I'm just going to read the whole thing. This is about 26 verses. It's going to take me about 26 minutes to do. Uh, so Or a little shorter, but... I'm going to start from the beginning so we can kind of get the full context of the story and then we'll just start talking about it piece by piece. Starting in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai which is near Bethaven east of Bethel and said to them go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him do not have all the people go up but let about 2 or 3000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as uh, Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Here's our text. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O oh Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear about it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? (laughs) Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, and they have taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies ...until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by uh, man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has. Because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zehorites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zehorites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to God. Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. and Behold, it was hidden in his tent and the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all of Israel with them took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheeps and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today, and all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acher, which translated means the Valley of Trouble. This is God's word. Lord, very heavy and even disturbing passage for our sensibilities. We approach this passage knowing and believing that you are good. And we ask that through your goodness you would minister to your people about what really matters in life. Give us ears to hear and a heart that is full of soft soil. That it would receive your word And bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 times what was planted. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you're reading uh, this passage asking yourself, gosh, why does God seem to care so much about sin? Really, stoned for taking a jacket? Perhaps you've experienced that, not from God, although maybe you have, you've read in the, pa- uh, in the scriptures passages like that, maybe you've experienced it from people, kind of that puritanical condemnation from other people, looking down on you for something that seems so trivial. And Truth be told, you can see stuff in their life that looks ten times worse than what you did. In uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's masterpiece, The Scarlet Letter, many of us were given a glimpse of this very thing, that that thing that irks us about this word sin. You know, the two main characters in the story, Hester uh, and Arthur, commit adultery together, right? Uh, And Hester must wear, you know, uh, Arthur gets away with it, and he kind of runs off in secret, but Hester, being pregnant, can't get away, and she's forced by the Uh, an actual Puritan town in Massachusetts in the 1600s to wear a scarlet A embroidered on her dress. She walks through the rest of her life uh, in shame, ridiculed by the whole village that treats her with disdain, even though her real husband, not Arthur, but the real guy, uh, in her mind was actually far worse than she, she was. It was a moment of passion, her husband that she left and cheated on actually did far worse things to her. We're left in this book wondering, you know, the, the, the gist of the do we why do we pick on, on people's sins so much? Especially ones that seem so trivial when there's so much else going on in the world that's worth crying about. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, you know? I think there's a lot of truth to that I don't think chapter 7 tells us that that isn't true. I think it asks a different question. While we're asking why does God care so much about sin, I think chapter 7 is asking us why don't we? Now, What we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 7, what, what Alan preached through so well, was that, it, that Joshua inquired of the Lord, or uh, he didn't inqu- inquire of the Lord about an upcoming battle. And if he would have, God presumably would have told him what was wrong with the state of Israel. And what is wrong is what we eventually see in the remaining chapter. And, you know, they lose the battle. It should have been a shoe-in. They just defeated Jericho. They just uh, watched the, the, the sea part from uh, end to end. They walk through. This is a victorious Group of people that has the presence of God with them, the the battle of I should have been a piece of cake, and it's told that they have actually been uh, thwarted, and routed, and pushed down, and even thirty six of their men have been killed by this small group of people. And so, in verse seven, we see Joshua crying out in prayer, "What is going on, God?" This isn't supposed to happen, so on and so forth. At the end of his prayer, he actually seems to get God right where it itches, and he says, "What will you do for your great name? If we're not winning the battle, how are you going to make your great name known?" And God speaks up, right? He says to Joshua, "Get up. Get off your, get off your feet. Why have you fallen on your face?" And he says, as a matter, of, just as a simple point. There's no complications about this. Israel sinned. And I think this is interesting because it was actually Achan who sinned. But God says Israel sinned. More on that later. But he says Israel has sinned. They took the devoted things, the very thing I told you not to do. And they also stole and lied and hid some of that stuff, uh, the belongings. So he lists all of these transgressions, right? In other words, and he says this, Israel broke the covenant, verse 11. Uh, Just a, a quick note about devoted things. Uh, I think Alan spoke about this a little bit. Uh, We might have touched on this a little bit during the Battle of Jericho, but devoted things were those elements of the Canaanite religion that were destructive to society. We're not talking about God devoting people to destruction, right? This is not a matter of wiping people. This isn't a genocide or a mass massacre. In fact, you're going to see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Canaanites actually still exist and are alive, uh, the, that, that, those phraseologies of wipe everybody off the face of the earth, that's military bragging. It's hyperbole. God isn't so much concerned about these people so much as their religion, which as we saw a couple weeks ago, was incredibly destructive. It wreaked violence and injustices, all sorts of things. And he gave them centuries to repent from it. Now the time has run out and he wipes out their religion, with, along with some of them. And so he says, look, I'm doing this for a reason. I don't want my people to get caught up in this stuff, lest this take root in my people again. And so when Achan takes some of these things, he says in verse 1 that they broke the faith. Literally, this means that they acted undercover. This was not an accident. This was not, you know, just a... Uh, uh, kind of a fleeting accident in Achan's mind. Another way of putting this phrase, broke the faith, uh, broke the faith? Broke the faith? Maybe same thing, I don't know. Broke the faith was acted treacherously. This is a treacherous act on the part of Achan. He did something willingly when he took the devoted things. This is not a mistake. This is not a small thing. This is a treacherous act by Achan. This is interesting because God is is uh, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, uh, and He is full of mercy and of grace, and He even provides a, a, a means of sacrifice we see in Leviticus one through seven for people who sin. But if you read all of those passages, you see a, a particular word come up: sinning unintentionally. For example, Numbers chapter fifteen, verse twenty-seven through thirty-one. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for that person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. So on and so forth. But look at the bottom here. It says, but the person who does anything with a high hand. That's just like what you imagine it. A high hand. This isn't an unintentional mistake you know, a fleeting act of passion. This is someone giving the high hand to God. It's treacherous. If a person does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be upon him. So there's this difference between sinning accidentally and doing it in god's face because you don't trust him and you're rebelling against him we see the same thing pop up the same idea in the new testament actually in hebrews chapter 10 it says in verse 26 if we go on sinning deliberately we continue to live in our sin we embrace it after receiving the knowledge of the truth there is no longer remaining a sacrifice for sins now, that doesn't mean that if you, you wake up tomorrow and you sin, you lose your salvation. That's not what it means. It's actually questioning whether you ever tasted of that salvation to begin with. Apostasy is in view here. A treacherous, high-handed middle finger to the Lord is saying, I have seen what you're about. I have seen you working in my life. You have touched me in my spirit and in my heart. You've done incredible things that I've witnessed with my own eyes, but I don't care living my life the way that I want. That is a high-handed, stiff-arming of the grace of God. So we're not talking, I want us to, to understand this, when we're speaking about Achan taking a, a robe and some bars of gold, we're not talking about, you know, going over the speed limit on accident here, Okay? This is essentially an act of apostasy here. Now, what makes it even crazier is who Achan is. At the beginning, we get a a little piece of his genealogy. For all of you wondering, like, why are all these genealogies in the Bible? I just skip over them when I get to them, you know? Uh, All of Matthew 1 and Chronicles and all of this stuff. They're actually there for a reason. They're there to give you an idea of the type of person that's being chronologized. It's a good one. (coughs) So, look at this guy. Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. This is a prestigious family line. Judah is like, that's like next in line to the throne. It's who the prophets said the kings uh, would come from, the royal line. It's later who the prophets would say the Messiah himself would come from. Of all people who would get it, it would be someone in the line of Judah. Uh, uh, you know, a parallel today, I don't know, it would be, like a prestigious name that you like, you hear that name, and you're like, ooh, like like Rothschild or Rockefeller, or some other long name that starts with R. Riddenhour. <laughs> it's like you hear that name, and you're like, yes, they get it, they understand the, they understand whatever it is that they're attempting to understand. So I want you to, I just want you to understand this picture of what's happening here. This isn't like some innocent little child who just kind of tripped and, you know, went past the speed limit on his way to work and repented from it. This is, this is a picture of someone who knows the promises of God, the power of his spirit, the goodness of his name, and is turned away to a life of sin. That's, that's what we're getting here. Now, Israel is blamed for Achan's sin. We'll talk about that later. But right now, and right away, God says, you must remove the devoted things in order to step into the promise that I have been, I have been directing you towards. In verse 13, he says this. Now, you ever wonder, this is, this is kind of the backdrop for all of this. Do You ever wonder, like, why, why does sometimes keeping the covenant prove so difficult? Why, does it, why is it so difficult sometimes to follow Jesus? Because I think for most of us, as believers, like we actually love Jesus. We love God. We love the things of God. We want to follow him the best that we can. Uh, but we're not perfect. And perhaps you've woken up on various occasions saying with Paul, like, gosh, the very thing that I wanted to do, I didn't do that thing. Like the one thing God told me to do, I didn't do that. And I did the one thing that he told me not to do. And I keep doing that over and over. What is happening within me? Why is it so hard? If sin is such a big deal to God, why is it so fun sometimes? Why is there some piece of me that has a hard time leaving the things of the world, and the things that God does not like? And I just want to briefly pull out of this passage three ways to navigate through that question. And I'm going to put it this way. Three, three points, if you will. Why we want to sin, as if you didn't know, why we shouldn't want to sin, and how we can be free from the power of sin. That's all I want to talk about from this crazy passage in, in Joshua chapter 7. Why we want to sin? Besides the obvious, it sometimes it feels good, and it's what we want in that moment. The truth of the matter is, we're allured, in some part, to things that aren't of God. It is a natural part of the human makeup. Now look at this, this phrase that is used to describe of Achan in verse 21. When I saw, when I saw the thing, there was something about this, whether you want to call it uh, a way of life or an object or a thing that God had uh, expressly prohibited, when he saw it, that was what triggered everything else. The point here is that it wasn't actually the behavior itself that started everything. It was something far deeper than the behavior. It was was something within Achan and within you and I. The Apostle James, uh, half-brother of Jesus, would go on to say something similar. He says, you know, God doesn't tempt people, and he himself can't be tempted. So don't, don't blame your sin on God, in other words, is what he's saying. And he goes on to say this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. His own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Where does sin come from? It comes from your heart. King David, in one of the Psalms, said, I was born, I was brought forth in my mother's womb in iniquity. My heart desires to rebel against God. In big ways, in small ways, whatever. That's just its tendency. Our behavior then is still sinful, right? The things that we do that hurt one another, that hurt ourselves, that are an affront to God, they're still bad. But that's not, the, that's not where it starts. Those are merely symptoms of something that's happening in the heart. Jesus said this. said, out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Murder, adultery. Sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, and the list that goes on. Those things originate inside you, inside me. You see why it's so important that we as believers understand that it's not enough to simply modify your behavior? That the gospel of Jesus Christ does not change what you're doing. It's not be a better person. It's not even stop sinning, not the gospel. Because there is something far, uh, there's something going on far deeper than just your behavior. Sin is in your heart at the very command center of the human personality, where the bus is being driven. That's where it is. So we're blaming the bus, God's blaming the driver. He's saying something needs to happen to the driver, Chris's heart. The truth is, I want to sin. Apart from the power and the touch of the Holy Spirit, I want to rebel against God, no matter what I tell myself. My body simply obeys what my heart wants. And it's used to doing that because it's been doing that for years. Now, it is possible for behaviors to change, for you to be transformed and to actually look like Jesus Christ. More on that later. But what we should practice asking now what we, should be, uh, what we should be in right now is in a state of awareness of our own brokenness and helplessness and sinfulness. I should be saying to myself all the time, I am not as good as I thought I was. I need help outside of myself. And listen, when we sin, when we do stuff that hurts other people, when we do stuff that hurts ourselves, when we do stuff against God's word, when we uh, break the covenant ourselves, our immediate inclination, and this is that legalistic, religious part of us that wants to, uh, to make ourselves better, right? We immediately want to go to the solution and fix it. And so maybe we do that by, by saying, oh man, I just lied to my boss. Well, I'm not going to do that again. But then maybe you do it again, maybe to someone else. Oh, I just lost my temper. Not going to get mad anymore. Not going to get mad. And that's, a, that's basically the es- essence of a lot of our Christianity. not going to do this anymore, and I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to do this better, and I'm going to do that. And that is not Christianity. That's every other religion in the world. Christianity is power from on high to change what you could not change for yourself. What we should be asking when we sin, something I've been doing uh, personally, is obviously not being okay with sinful behavior, but but starting off by asking myself, why? Okay, why did I lie to my boss? Because if this is true, what Matthew and James and Joshua are all saying is that sin originates from desires within, I want to understand what is the desire within me that's motivating my behavior. Why did I lie to my boss? Well, maybe it's because I have a deep love of approval well, then I can start addressing that desire and not simply outward symptoms and manifestations of it. I can allow the the presence of Jesus and the power of the gospel into those deep crevices. Why did I, I lose my temper? Why am I a bully at work, you know? Well, if I examine some of my deep desires, if I allow God into those places, I might find, well, to be honest, I'm a bully because I'm super insecure. And that's my way of of securing my security. And the list goes on. Achan didn't just arbitrarily steal something. He just just didn't just roll out of the bed and he was like, oh, a pound of gold, a bar of gold. I'm taking that. That's awesome. By the way, the things that he he took probably amounted to about a lifetime of salary in that day. This is not a small thing that he took. But he didn't just arbitrarily take it. Look Look at the direction of verse 21. It says uh, uh, says in verse 21, when I saw, this is Achan speaking, when I saw among the spoil beautiful cloak from Shinar and the gold and the silver uh, and the shekels, then I coveted them and took them. Look at that trajectory. I saw, I coveted, I took. It's actually the same pattern we saw back in Genesis chapter 3 with Eve. Almost the same exact, it actually says, I saw, I desired, I took the fruit. So in Achan, it's not just a, doesn't just have like a problem with stealing. He was coveting. Coveting means that you want something that you don't have. In other words, Achan, even though he's of one of the most prestigious tribes of Israel, has seen God already in his lifetime do incredible things, has all the promises and inheritance of God at his disposal, he's coveting, that is, he is saying, I have all that God has given me, and it's not enough. God, you are not enough. There's a desire. Maybe you're addicted to porn. Ask yourself, what is the desire within me that is driving me to this? You might immediately be like, oh, well, it's lust. Well, yeah, it could be that probably. But maybe there's something else. Maybe you want to escape. Maybe, maybe you are a bully. Maybe the deeper desire under that is a need for acceptance. Maybe you were bullied as a kid and you're now projecting that on other people. Maybe you feel threatened because you've been uh, threatened your entire life. So now anytime someone uh, confronts you, you feel threatened and you lash out. Why, what is, the, what is the desire driving the things that I do? Allowing God into those desires so that he can heal them. Why do we want to sin? We're allured to it because that's where our hearts are directed. But at this point, you might be like, yeah, saying all the things that I already know. And you're convincing me that I love sin. Good job. I'm going to keep sinning. Here's why we shouldn't. Love, sin. Remember, I'm not talking about a list of to do, uh, do's and don'ts that your parents gave you. I'm talking about God's will and his plan, you know? Uh, you, you can't escape this. In the center of focus is God's burning anger. Verse one, we're told that. At the end of verse 26, we're told that. This whole, this whole passage is sandwiched between God's burning anger. You might be like, well, oh, is God like this emotional, capricious being that just loses it anytime I make a mistake? Oh, notice God's anger is not directed towards people here. It's directed towards the sin itself. And you have to ask yourself why. And sin, maybe it'll help to understand where the word sin came from. It comes uh, literally from the word meaning to miss the mark right? It, ha- it has the connotations of like uh, archery. So you're like uh, trying to hit a target and you miss, you, you went off a little bit to the side. So to miss the mark. Missing what mark? Well, God's will and his commands and his good purpose for human flourishing and for his kingdom. He has a good design and a good purpose for all humanity, and when we step out of that design, we are, quote-unquote, missing the mark, sin. So sin, then, is stepping out of God's will and design. Now, if we believe, and I think we do, that God's nature, by nature, he is good and benevolent and kind and that his default towards people is love. God is good, and he, his uh, view towards people is one of love. Then we need a radical re-understanding of what sin is before we can understand what his burning anger is towards sin. Why would God be angry towards sin? Now, I imagine that if he's angry towards sin because he's good and he's loving, then there's something about sin that is bad for you and for me. That's exactly what we see in the passage. What do you know? Sin is destructive to you and I. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The funny thing about, or not funny, but the, the difficult thing about this is that often when we are doing something that God told us not to do, it seems like a very triv- it could seem like a trivial thing in the moment like how is this going to how is this going to bring me death understand that this is partly a metaphor it's also true sin entered the world and with it death but also metaphorically speaking sin destroys everything it might be a slow type of entropy but it destroys it starts with your soul The wages of sin is death. I didn't finish that passage in James. But what James ends up saying is each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin is destructive to human people. It is the opposite of human flourishing. It is a source of all that is wrong with our world, with our families, with our marriages, with our own minds and hearts. It is the very thing that Christ came to free us from because God loves people. You may say, well, yeah, I have no doubt that sin is destructive to me, especially this one that I'm doing right now. But, you know, I'll stop next year. God will forgive me and I'll be fine. What we don't always understand, however, is that you can't sin in a vacuum. Sin is not just destructive to you. It's destructive to everyone around you. Notice all over chapter 7, even though it's Achan. Achan did it. Nobody else did it. In verse 1, 5, 11, 12, look at the language here. Verse 1. God says, the people of Israel broke faith. Look at verse 5. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of Israel's men, and the hearts of the people melted. None of those 36 sinned. Look at verse 11. Israel has sinned, God said. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put among their own belongings, verse 12. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. This is very sobering that in Scripture we we are uh, shown that when somebody walks away from the Lord or they sin and transgress the Lord's covenant, it actually has repercussions and effects on the whole community. That when there's sin in the camp, it is like a cancerous virus that affects the health of the whole group. Notice Joshua says to Achan in verse 25, Why did you bring trouble on us? Thirdly, I think we can't avoid this, that sin will rob you of the promise. That the promises of God belong to you, If you are in Christ, that He has done everything needed for you to step into the promises and into your inheritance and to every spiritual blessing, but you can rip yourself off. Israel had to remove the devoted things in order to step into the promise we see in verse 13. Perhaps we today are not living fully into God's promises for us because of our love for the devoted things. What are those devoted things for you? It could be anything. Some area in your life that you are sacrificing to keep. Something that God is trying to pry from your fingertips because He knows it's wrong for you. Something that you are sacrificing in order to keep. Perhaps you're sacrificing your own soul, your marriage, your job. But it's that one thing, it's that one idol in your life. What we see here is that a mark of God's people is not merely church attendance, it's obedience. Christians are followers of Jesus Christ, not attenders of church. That's your identity. It's people who have entered into a covenant with God by grace and who have said, yes, this for me. And look at the examples between these two people, Achan and Rahab. Rahab was the quintessential Canaanite. She was a prostitute hanging out in a military outpost in Canaan. She was the poster child for the out there. She was on the outside looking in. And because she was looking in by faith, God said, I'll take you. You're just what I was looking for. Meanwhile, we have Achan, the poster child for all that is right with life. He had everything that he ever needed from God. Born into the right family. We would call him a church attender. We would call him super religious, pious, in the right family, in the right tribe, in the right neighborhood. And yet in him we see a person on the inside looking out. And who does God accept? He accepted Rahab. It's not your outward conformity to a list of cultural ideas about Christianity like church attendance or the way you dress, or the way you act, or whether your parents went to church, or uh, how many holy things that you do on the outward. It is an inward thing brought by the Holy Spirit. In Psalm chapter 4, and that leads you to change. The psalmist in Psalm 40 says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you've not required those things. These outward shows of worship. But then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. The mark of a changed person is a delight in the things of God, not a repulsion. The Holy Spirit has to bring that. And so, in a stunning end to the story, Achan and his whole family are killed. They're stoned. Their remains are burned. This is a very difficult thing to read, for me to read, because it's intense. It seems out of proportion to the sin. But again, chapter 7 is telling us, why don't we have a bigger view of sin? Perhaps we need a bigger view of God. Now, Joshua didn't do this, but the whole community did. I don't know what else to say about this other than to approach it with holy fear and to ask the Lord to show me the beauty of his holiness once again and the the sinisterness of my own sin. Perhaps I've made it appear too small. But I also thank God that we don't stone each other anytime we make a mistake. That's awesome about, you know, the New Testament. But we do see an analogy in the New Testament that is, it's not violent, but it's, it's not any less humbling. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In a passage that is actually caused many people to look upon and to say, That's not very inclusive or that's not very loving. We again see the, the, the importance of being set apart for God. Uh, backdrop to the story. Not trying to pick on sexual sin here, but uh, that's the, the context here. When we speak of sin, it's, it's anything God tells us to do and we don't do or vice versa. But the particular context here is, is sexual immorality man is sleeping with his father's wife in the church. And Paul says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. This is a New Testament church, okay? And of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant about it. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So right here, he's saying, you're living in a, a, a way that is not not what God has called us to be as God's people. That person needs needs to not be dwelling in your midst. Now this might seem incredibly harsh. But he goes on to say in verse uh, 7, or verse 6 and 7, your boasting is not good. He uses this analogy. Listen to this. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Sp- using bread as a as an analogy for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed now in verse 9 he goes on to say i wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people or people who sin not at all meaning the sexual immoral of the world or the greedy here here he lists all sorts of sins greedy swindlers idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world notice what he's saying there this is what we're not saying saying, I don't want you to associate with people who do bad things or th- things that are unbiblical. That's the world. That's what they're going to do. And you're called to be in the world. You're not supposed to judge or condemn people that don't know any better. So who am I talking about? Who's, who's Paul talking about? Look at this, uh, verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God ju- judges those on the outside. We judge those who are on the inside. You see what he's saying? Don't judge non-believers. Judge each other. And notice the other thing that he's saying. I'm not concerned about people that sin because that's what they do. I'm concerned about people who profess that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior and who are lying about it, who are living their lives in a way that is making Christ look bad. I am concerned with people who say, I am a Christian, I'm an evangelical. I am a Christ follower, but I do all the things that everybody else in the world does. Paul is saying, that is not okay. When the world looks inside like Rahab looked on the inside, when they look inside at the church, they should see lives that are different, that match the principles and the essence of the kingdom of God. Paul says, hey, sinners going to sin, no problem. That's why we're here, to be a salt and a compassionate light to them. But Christians that are taking the name and want the blessing but do not want God's rule, not okay. You need to repent. Now, this this is not a call for us to be, you know, sin sniffers, right? Some of you think you have the spiritual gift of sin sniffing. I just want you to know, I've read the Bible many times, and there is no spiritual gift of sin-sniffing in there. You do know what I mean, right? Like, oh, I saw so-and-so the other day, and they're just looking at their Instagram, and they were doing something. And I think you should know about it. I'm going to send out a mass email to everybody for prayer. Listen, we all know the effect when someone we don't know comes sniffing in our corner. Nobody wants that, right? If you're a sin sniffer, nobody likes you. So repent. What I'm calling for are communities that cultivate a shared trust. I I don't mean 500 people. I mean like 6, 7, 10, 12, your home group, your little body of friends that all follow Christ together, you know? For you to invite people into your life that you love and trust who can see your blind spots and call you out. That's what we need. It's for us to grow aware that we often walk in contrary ways to God and we don't want to because we love him so much but we we don't always see those areas and so we invite people that we trust and love to call us out and we listen to them when, when they do. And we do this because we understand that sin is worse than we think. Towards God, towards others, towards the created order, towards ourself, sin is the bane of human existence and the bane of human flourishing, and we were meant for more. And God starts that process off more by changing us from the inside out. Lastly, this is how we can be free from sin. The truth is, you try to remove sin from your midst, you will fail miserably. What we need today is not to reach out from our sin to try to grab God. The gospel is that God has left his throne to reach out and grab us in our sin. And Christ has taken our place. Paul said in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You did all the wrong things for all the wrong reasons. Carrying out those desires just like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved you. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. There are two truths of the gospel. I want to throw out two words and then we'll, we'll call it a day. Two words that emerge out of the gospel. That is the reason by which you and I can be free of the things that entangle us. And rob us of the promises that God has for us. One was uh, 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 brought to popularity by the great Martin Luther. That is the word justification. It is a, a gospel word. It essentially means you're worse than you thought, but you're more loved than you can imagine. That truly, when you look inside, you see sin, and yet God loves you even more than your sin. And cosmic traitors, all of us, even though we have rebelled against God, we don't deserve clemency as an act of grace. Jesus took the stoning in our place by dying on the cross in our place, bearing the sins of the world so that we wouldn't have to giving us what the great hymn writer would, uh, would later declare, my sin, oh, the, uh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you stand before him, not shamed as a sinner, but made righteous and looking righteous and appearing righteous because you are righteous. The problem is, even though God sees us as righteous, we know that we wake up every day with, with those remaining desires to do what he has called us not to. And here, Here's the thing. We can't. What we see in verse 12, and God says this, right? God's love remains with us when we disobey. But in this instance, his presence may not. God still loves you. But his presence might not be there in a a specific way to bless, depending on the way that you live. Another way of saying this is, you can't lose your salvation by sinning. But you can lose your experience of salvation by choosing to play around with sin. It's not God withholding his goodness from you, it's you stepping away from it. And so in comes the second word. If justification means Christ trades places with us, he takes our sin, we take his righteousness. Sanctification means he's changing us to look more like him every day. It means you're not as good as you could be, but you're better than you were yesterday. It means you're, you might be stuck in the same broken movie scene, but someone has just handed you a new script by which to live. And in that new script, we're called to continually put to sin, uh, excuse me, put to death that sin which is in us by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. You may say, well, how do we do this? For the sake of time, I'm just going to throw out three very simple things. First, you need to be born again. Jesus said, there is no way, there is no way you can see the kingdom of God unless you were born again by faith. Rahab was saved out of judgment. By seeing and believing. Second, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon your life in a special way. Paul said, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you live up by, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So we need the power of the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. Thirdly, you need to, from this point on, endeavor to live according to that new script. By the power of the Holy Spirit. This does not mean sitting back and passively kind of, you know, letting go and letting God, so to speak. It means taking step after step of faith into obedience, refusing to let sin reign in you. It means allowing the Holy Spirit to replace the old script in your mind, heart, and body, stepping out and obeying the new one. And it starts often with a simple step of faith. Whatever it is, you've got to remember today that the first step of repentance is always a leap into the welcome arms of God's love. We repent because God loves us and He has something better in store for us than what we often think. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here as we sing and I want to just end with this thought perhaps some of you are thinking this is all great and fine but you know I've I've sinned my entire life I'm in a place of despair right now I have certainly racked up a lot of mistakes is it too late for me? you know what's awesome about this passage is when it closes it closes with a name That Achan's sin led to this place being called the Valley of Acre or Trouble, the Valley of Trouble in verse 26. Perhaps for you, your sin, your life has led you into a Valley of Trouble too. And you're like, how can I possibly get out of this? And yet later, centuries later, the prophet Hosea would usher a promise about someone who would come, God himself. Listen to what he listen to what the prophet says he says therefore behold i will allure her israel we have been allured by our sin by all of the things in the world around us up until this day god says i have the solution i will allure you and i will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her and there i will give her vineyards And I will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. He literally changes the name of that place. Some of you are living the consequences and the defeat of a life filled with sin. You're wondering, is there any way out of this for me? Is there any hope of redemption? God has the ability to change your valley of trouble into a door of hope. God is in the business of changing people's names. And he can do the same for you. All that he asks of you is the same thing he's been asking century after century. Believe, trust, follow. And I'll take care of the rest. If you believe that today, posture yourself to receive. The endless mercy and the love of God, which is lavished upon the Rahabs of the world. Heavenly Father. As we worship today, may you minister to us in any way that you see fit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.